0: Our scripture this morning comes from 1 Peter, chapter 2, verses 4 to 10. I'll be reading in the ESV. Please stand with me. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, This is God's word. Amen. Please be seated.
1: Amen. Thank you, guys. A great message and has much, uh, much to do with what we're thinking about this morning as we think about worship and what makes that possible in the love of Christ. So thank you so much for that. Go ahead and, and find your Bibles again, if you will. We're in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. There are few topics of such great importance that generate such trivial rivalries than the subject of worship, which is what our topic is this morning. So for the month of January into next week, because we got a a week delay at the beginning of the year, we're taking a break from our series through the Gospel of Matthew, which is what we've normally been looking at, and we're stopping and asking ourselves, what does it mean for us to be the church, as opposed to thinking about and approaching church as just something that you go to, something static and isolated, disconnected from everyday life, what does it mean for us to be the church as a relational and dynamic and integrated part of life? And our guide for this subject has been 1 Peter 1-2. through 2. So far we've seen Peter lay a foundation of real faith for God's people. In the first few verses, that faith is God-centered and it's saturated with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's faith that produces in us salvation And that is guided and and shaped by God's word, the scriptures. That was the foundation he laid. And then last week we talked about real community, how the church is a family. And how the gospel of Jesus, if we take it seriously, produces in this family a sincere, unhypocritical love. The kind of love where we are secure enough to be honest about who we are, who we truly are. And yet loving enough to not necessarily leave each other where we are, but to help one another grow in the likeness of Christ. And so as we come to 1 Peter 2, 4 through 10, Peter is now changing the imagery here from a family, which we saw in the previous section. He's now shifting the metaphor and the imagery to that of a temple, of a temple To help us understand yet another layer of what it means for us to be the church, to be the people of God in Christ, including our essential job description as God's people, which is to be worshipers of God. We are called to be worshipers of God. To worship something is to give our ultimate allegiance and place our ultimate hope in that thing because we recognize the ultimate worth of that thing. So worship is, is recognizing the worth of something and then trusting in and, and being loyal to and delighting in and finding our hope in whatever it is that we're ascribing ultimate worth to. In fact, the word worship comes from that worth-ship. That's where we get it. It's recognizing the worth of something. And everybody worships something. Whether you're a religious person or not, everybody worships something. There's something that you look to to find your significance and identity, to deal with your problems, to give you a sense of hope in this world. It may be God, it might be some generic spirituality. Or it might be something like a career or a certain relationship. It might be you know maybe getting married or having children or attaining a certain status. It might be money or power or sex or alcohol. So all sorts of different things we can treat as our ultimate hope. And, and a lot of these things, most of these things, there's nothing wrong with them. These are good things. But what happens, as Tim Keller puts it, is that when you take a good thing and you treat it as an ultimate thing, that's when you've created a counterfeit God. That's when you've created an idol A God replacement. And one way to tell what your counterfeit God might be, Keller suggests, is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would hardly feel worth living. That thing, whatever it is, that is what you're ascribing ultimate worth to. That is what you worship. And if it's not the real God, it's going to disappoint. It's going to disappoint. But even when our worship is directed toward the real God, toward the God who makes himself known in scriptures, the maker of heaven and earth, uh, God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, even when we do direct our worship toward the real God, we tend to reduce the idea of worship to a handful of things that we do Sunday morning when we get together at church. So maybe it's singing or or uh, prayer or the reading of God's word or the Lord's table or or baptism or something. But and even among that list, if we were to take a poll here, our tendency—the thing we most commonly associate worship with—narrows down to really mainly one thing: music. Uh, I remember visiting a church, a really good church, several years back um, when we were living in Wheaton, and. Something the song leader said really stuck with me. Uh, After he finished leading the song just before the sermon and the the preacher's coming up, he said, mornings like this, I just wish we could keep on worshiping through the whole service. That song was so moving. I just wish we could keep on worshiping. It, It makes you stop and think, well, what's the sermon? Is that not part of the worship? The worship was associated in our brains with music. Or we even say things like, how was the worship this Sunday? Meaning, how was the music? Did you like it? Did the band stay together? You know, was the PowerPoint on time? So on. But a shout out to our, our PowerPoint people. It's, it, it's the kind of job that you never get any feedback unless you mess up. And so I just want to say thank you to the PowerPoint people and the sound people. Uh, We're, we're really blessed, but, you know, so we, we take this huge, significant thing and we reduce it to a very narrow slice of what we do, music, and then we fight about it, don't we? I mean, you know, the so-called worship wars that, over different styles of music that, that plague so many churches. Now, I'm not going to talk about the worship wars this morning, um, partly because I'm of the opinion that if we love Jesus and we love each other more than we love a particular kind of music, we wouldn't have worship wars. But I do want us to wrestle with a bigger question, and that is this. What is real worship? What is real worship? What does it mean as the people of God in Christ, as the church, to ascribe to God the worth and glory he deserves? What does that mean? So let's pray together, and we're going to look at at 1 Peter 2, 4 through 10. Lord, we want to hear from you this morning. If worship is all about recognizing your worth and your glory, our prayer is that you would be on display, not us, not me. Lord, your word, empowered by your spirit, To change our hearts to behold your beauty, to delight in you, to declare your glory, to understand what it means to be a people who give you the worth and the glory due your name. So be with us, open our hearts to hear you, open our eyes to see you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. What is real worship? To understand the imagery that Peter's using uh, and therefore what he's saying about what real worship is, we have to back up a bit uh, this morning and, and think a little bit, talk a little bit about ancient Israel and what it meant for them to be worshipers of God. All of the imagery and categories that Peter's using in these verses to talk about real worship as God's church. He's drawing from the Old Testament scriptures and Israel's covenant relationship with God. And so we have to to look at that and get a bit of background here. And I don't know how familiar you are with the story of Israel or the story of the Old Testament. Uh, We read, uh, particularly in the book of Exodus, how when when God rescued Israel, the Hebrew people from slavery in Egypt, and he made them into a nation, which was the birth of Israel, as it were. He did that for a purpose. God had a purpose in mind in saving his people. In Exodus 19 verses four through six, he says to Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians." and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So he is a God who has rescued his people. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that... You, uh, Moses, shall speak to the people of Israel. So Israel, upon being rescued by God, becomes his holy nation. To be holy is to be set apart from the ordinary. It's special, set apart for God. From every other nation, they are his treasured possession. God did this to fulfill his promise to Abraham that he would make him into a great nation someday. He did it to reclaim his plan for creation. For a people made in his image to be his children. To be his royal representatives on the earth. God was reclaiming a people for himself. And so Israel was to be a kingdom of priests. God says. He says that the whole nation. Not just some people. But the whole nation was consecrated for service to God. They were to be a people of worship. A people of worship. But to serve God. And to walk with God, to keep his commands and to honor him, they needed the presence of God. They needed God to be with them if they were going to be able to worship and obey him. And so God, keep going on through the book of Exodus, God gives them instructions to build the tabernacle, which was a special tent where he would make his glory known and his presence known among Israel in a special way. The tabernacle for Israel was where people would go on earth to meet with the God who is in heaven. It was the place of his special presence, and it was later replaced by the temple when it became a permanent structure in Jerusalem. But there was a significant problem. How can a holy God, a God who's too perfect to even look at unrighteousness, who is too pure to allow sin into his presence how can a holy god take up residence with a sinful people like israel because they were sinners just like us you know after god rescued them from egypt before they had even made it to the red sea they were grumbling and complaining and wanting to go back into slavery instead of follow this god you know when the tabernacle is finally finished at the end of exodus and the glory of God fills it, we're told that not even Moses is able to go into it. So how are they to be a people of worship if they can't approach God due to their sin? That's a problem. And so the next book, and don't worry, we're not going to go through every book of the Old Testament this morning, but the book following Exodus is Leviticus, where God institutes a priesthood who will offer sacrifices to atone for Israel's sin, to take away their sins, because only then can a holy God dwell in their midst. Something has to be done about sin, about their disobedience to God, about their uncleanliness that comes from turning against him. And there were several different kinds of sacrifices uh, in Leviticus, but most of them involved the death of an animal in place of God's people so the animals offered up to god in a ceremony the blood is sprinkled on the altar to atone for the sins of the people to cleanse the altar to cleanse the people and make them fit for service in god's presence and all of israel the whole nation would have to bring different kinds of sacrifices to the priests that they would then offer on their behalf to god so Central to Israel's identity as God's new covenant people was the calling of worship. Central to their identity. And and it was their recognition of God's worthiness and glory shown by their obedience to his word and by their sacrifices that were offered to deal with sin. Worship was not whatever Israel wanted to make of it. It was not... Uh, You know, it it had to accord to God's terms and it had to serve God's purposes because if it was going to be acceptable in in God's sight, he's the one who sets the rules as the creator, as the king, as the savior. He's God, they're not. And so he calls them to worship him. But just as as we often have problems today uh, with worship, with ascribing God worth, so did ancient Israel. They had a, God was merciful to give them the provisions of the sacrifices. But but they did not always walk uh, in accordance with his glory. Sometimes uh, it was giving the glory and honor that he alone deserved taking that and then giving it to some other foreign God, some idol. Uh, it was one of the, the ongoing difficulties of the story of Israel. Sometimes it was approaching their own God, but doing so for their own purposes and on their own terms. Uh, later in Israel's story, the prophets often rebuked the people of Israel because of their worship. Whether they were offering empty words, not coming from the heart, uh, or, or whether they were offering flawed sacrifices, keeping the best of their flocks for themselves and taking the runts or the diseased ones and bringing those to the temple for God, kind of giving him the leftovers. Um, Israel had a tendency to show up for religious services, singing to God, listening to the the reading of his word, making offerings and sacrifices, but then to disregard God's law for the rest of life, particularly in loving one another or in doing justice to one another, in caring for those in need and so on. And so the prophets again and again rebuke Israel for that. For instance, in Amos 5, God says to his people, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Yikes. Imagine us gathering here today, putting on a show for God, singing to him, and God coming back and say, stop it. I hate what you're doing right now. I will, even though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters. And righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Not unlike how many of us live today. there, There was a huge difference in what they did when they gathered for worship, and how they actually lived the rest of their lives. And it wasn't marked by justice. It wasn't marked by holiness or obedience. And therefore, their gathered worship was a stink in God's nostrils. God is far more interested in our obedience, in our love, in our justice, than having people show up and go through the motions of a religious service. God is seeking true worshipers. Worship that recognizes his unique worthiness and that approaches him on his terms for his purposes, for his glory. And that's something at the end of the day Israel was unable to do. It's something that we, left to ourselves, are equally unable to do. Because we're a sinful people. Every single one of us in different ways uh, lets God down. We, we have uh, hijacked relationships to, to use them instead of to love people. We have, uh, we have turned worship into something that's about us in some way or another. The only thing that makes real worship possible is our Savior Jesus Christ. And that's what Peter emphasizes in our passage the centrality of Christ in real worship. Look again with me at 1 Peter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So notice first there how much of the language that Peter is using is an echo of what we just saw with respect to ancient Israel's worship. We see the temple there, the house. We see the priesthood. We see the sacrifices. All of those things are mentioned in Peter's description. But there's also something very, very different about what he's describing. The temple here is not a physical building, but a spiritual one. It's made up not of earthen stones, but of living stones. In other words, the people of God in Jesus Christ, who is the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen and precious before God. So the building is not physical, it's spiritual. Second, the priesthood here is not just a role that some people play, but like Exodus 19, it's the calling of all God's people. All God's people are set apart for worship. And their essential job description is not to offer physical sacrifices, it's not animal sacrifices, but spiritual sacrifices, he says, that are acceptable to God Through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ. Jesus is what makes all of the difference here, according to Peter. He is true Israel. He's the fulfillment of everything that God called Israel to be and to do. He is their perfect king who stands in the place of his people, who walks in perfect obedience to God and his law, who is the true and perfect worshiper that we fail to be, that Israel failed to be, that all humanity fails to be. Jesus is that. He is the true temple, the temple in the Old Testament. it's, It's the place where people would go on earth to meet with God who is in heaven. But when Jesus walked on this earth, his body became the new temple because If the temple is the place of God's special presence and God shows up in the flesh, Jesus being fully human, but also fully God at the same time. If he shows up in the flesh, guess what? You don't need the building anymore. You've got God standing in front of you. Jesus replaces the temple. He is the new temple. He says in John 2, destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days. And John tells us he's talking about the temple Of his body. Jesus is the great high priest. In fact, in the New Testament, there is no office of leadership in the church called priest. Uh, There are elders who are sometimes called overseers and, and are charged with shepherding or pastoring the flock. There are deacons who minister and serve the church. But even though some traditions will call their clergy priests, according to Scripture, there is only one person who holds the office of priest in the church, the great high priest, Jesus Christ. He is the final priest because his sacrifice was sufficient to cover the sins of everyone who has ever lived, is living, or will live. There are no more blood sacrifices necessary. Therefore, there are no more priests needed. He is the final great high priest and the sacrifice that he made was his own body on the cross. Hebrews 10 tells us, and by God's will, we have been sanctified. We've been made holy, set apart. We've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Amen. Every priest... The Old Testament priests, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins, not fully. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. His job was done. And so he's waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Real worship centers on Jesus Christ. He changes everything about what it means to know God and to honor him. He is, as Peter puts it, and, and as Jesus himself uses the same imagery in the Gospels to talk about himself. He is the cornerstone of God's new temple, his new people, his church. I have virtually no experience building things besides Legos with my son Joshua. But as I understand it, the cornerstone is that first stone that's set in a foundation Against which, that sets the course for every other stone that's going to be laid in the building. Where you put that determines everything else about how you build. And you can't build without it because you lose shape uh, and and structure. And so the cornerstone is this fundamental uh, thing. And it's often used in the Old Testament as a metaphor for God's program of salvation. God is building His plan of salvation for his people. And it's often then set over against uh, the plans of those who rebel against him. For instance, in Psalm 118, uh, we read, and speaking here of God's salvation, that the stone that the builders rejected, so the builders had their own plan, their own project, the stone that they rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. God is building his own salvation program, and he's doing it on his terms. The people had come up with their self-salvation project, uh, their own plan to get what they wanted out of life. But in doing so, they were necessarily rejecting the heart of God's plan. They were casting away what should have been the centerpiece of their foundation. Which, when you come forward to the story of Jesus, is exactly what happens to him when he shows up on the scene. And you know, when he arrives as Israel's long-awaited king, as we've been studying in Matthew, Israel was expecting, by and large, they were expecting a different kind of king for a different kind of kingdom. They wanted a king who would lead them in battle, liberating themselves from the Roman rule over them. The religious leaders wanted a king who would essentially sanction the power and authority that they had already taken for themselves. But Jesus did not come to take life. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. To take the penalty of Israel's sin and the penalty of her enemies. To take the penalty of all humanity's sin on himself on the cross, to bear the full weight of God's holy anger against sin, to drain the the cup of God's wrath down to the dregs, such that there is no wrath left for those who take refuge in him. He came to set us free from sin and to redeem us so that we might become true worshipers of God, so that real worship would be possible for sinful people. Jesus is the cornerstone of God's salvation program. As Peter says in verse 6. Quoting Isaiah 28. For it stands in scripture. Behold. I am laying in Zion. A stone. A cornerstone. Chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him. Will not be put to shame. But that's not who most of Israel was looking for. Uh, They weren't listening carefully to God's word, and so they had no desire for that kind of king. Jesus, as he was, as he truly was, was a stumbling block. That's not the kind of king they wanted. As he is for many today who who insist on our own self-salvation programs. This is what I want life to look like. Here's the ways I think I can achieve that. And, 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 And we build our own program. But to do that, that means rejecting Jesus because he demands total allegiance. He's the center of our hearts. He's the center of our lives. And so he gets cast off in unbelief. And yet, even though he's so often cast off, he still remains king. That's one of Peter's main points here. He's still the answer to God's salvation program. The corner, the, the stone that the builders rejected is still the cornerstone whether they reject him or not. And he will judge those who fail to recognize his worth and refuse to come to him and find life and forgiveness in his name. He did not spill his blood for nothing. He did not spill his blood as just one option among many for redeeming humanity. He gave everything he had to rescue a people for himself. And that's the only name under heaven by which we must be saved. Peter says, says in the middle of verse seven, for those who do not believe the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do, even in their unbelief and disobedience. Even in the unbelief and disobedience of those who crucified him and of those who, who ultimately reject him today, Jesus is still king working all things out according to his sovereign plan. He's still the chosen and precious cornerstone, and true worship is still only possible through him. And so Peter says at the beginning of verse 7, so the honor is for those who believe. The honor is for those who believe, only through faith in Jesus, through, through faith trusting who he is and what he's done are we able to approach God in relationship and worship because His sacrifice was enough? We must come to Him, verse 4 says. We must believe. Real worship requires faith in Christ. And as a people who believe in Christ, we are united with Christ to become part of God's new covenant family, to become, as He describes it here, part of the new temple The spiritual temple that God is building, the people in whom his spirit dwells and through whom he displays his glory. Peter describes our new identity in Christ in verses nine through ten. And again, echoing all sorts of Old Testament language, he says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And nearly every single word in those two verses is a quotation from the Old Testament scriptures and what God says about his covenant people Israel. What was true of them in their calling and identity is true of the church today. And it's not as though God discarded Israel. It's not that the church replaces Israel. It's that Jesus is true Israel. And so therefore, everyone who is in him is part of the fulfillment of what God has been planning for his people all along. Whether you're of Jewish descent or non-Jewish descent, there's one body in Christ. Paul puts it this way. In Ephesians 2, for Christ himself is our peace, who has made both Jew and Gentile, is what he's talking about here, he's made both Jew and Gentile one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man, a new humanity in place of the two, Jew and Gentile so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So then, verse 19, speaking to Gentiles, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom The whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Real worship centers on Jesus Christ. And all who belong to him, whether you are of Jewish descent or non-Jewish descent, all who belong to him become part of God's treasured possession, his special people. And as such, as that holy nation, as that royal priesthood, we have work to do. We have work to do. We have a job, and it's called worship. So what counts as real worship? Or to use Peter's language in verse 5, what in the world are the spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God? What is he asking us to offer? Well, we know already that it's not blood sacrifices or animal sacrifices, uh, anything meant to atone for sin because Christ is... Completed that. He died once for all as a sufficient sacrifice. We also know that they are acceptable to God, verse 5, through Jesus Christ. So what makes whatever it is we offer acceptable to God is not ultimately whether we can manage to offer something untainted by sin or with a completely pure heart and no mixed motives and so on. Even our most righteous acts of worship are in some way stained by sin. That is the nature of life in a fallen world with people who who are saved but we're not yet complete. We haven't arrived. And so what makes our worship acceptable is not ultimately complete purity of heart because we can't come up with that in and of ourselves. What makes our offerings acceptable to God is that they are offered through Jesus Christ. They are covered by his blood by his grace. And we know. We know that they are not animal sacrifices. We know that they are offered through Christ. And we know that they are spiritual sacrifices. So, Which is one way of saying not animal or blood sacrifices. But it also is emphasizing the role of the Holy Spirit in our worship. They are sacrifices, offerings made in accordance with the Spirit of God. By people who have the Spirit in them who are walking in the Spirit of God, which is something we receive through faith in Christ. But what are those offerings? There are three verses that I think help us understand that, and then I want to close with two applications from those verses. So first, verse 9 in our passage, praise. What are the, the spiritual sacrifices we're called to offer? The first one is praise. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We have been given a new identity in Christ for a purpose, to declare God's praise, to announce and rejoice in what he's done to rescue us from darkness and sin. To make us his children through Jesus. To ascribe worth and glory to his name. That's why we sing songs regularly. It's not just because we like music. It's because we're singing and ascribing to God the worth to his name. We're reminding one another how worthy he is. Who he is. What he's done. How we can trust him. That's why we share testimonies with each other of what God has done in our lives to change us. That's why we boldly declare what the Bible says about him. We're recognizing here is a God who's uniquely worthy. And we want to, to respond to that worthiness by giving him the glory, the praise he deserves. So it's a verbal declaration of God's glory, that's one of the offerings that we give. We see a similar idea in our second passage in Hebrews 13, 15 to 16. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So he starts again with praise. Same thing we saw in 1 Peter 2, 9. Acknowledging God's ultimate worth with our mouths. But then he broadens it to include doing good and sharing what we have with others. So those those two are sacrifices pleasing to God, he says in Hebrews. So, so real worship is what we say, but it's also what we do. It, it, it's how we speak. It's also how we live. It's singing God's praises, but it's also helping your kids do their homework or, or doing the dishes for your wife. It's. Praying together in dependence on God, it's also paying a natural gas bill for someone who's about to have their heat shut off. Anything that we do in obedience to God or in love for someone else that that honors God is an act of worship to God. All of life, anything we do, real worship. Is any act of obedience to God and any act of love for someone that honors God. It's not just what we do when we gather, it's how we live life. And that's what the third verse tells us in describing these sacrifices, and that's Romans 12 1. Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual or your fitting worship. So it's on the basis of God's mercy. It's on the basis of everything Paul's written already in the book of Romans about the gospel of Christ. In in view of that mercy, offer your whole bodies, your whole selves, your whole lives as a living sacrifice, a walking sacrifice sacrifice, a walking, living, breathing offering to God. That's what life is supposed to be. Everything we think, everything we say, everything we do is to be done in recognition of God's ultimate worth and as a reflection of his beauty and his glory. Which brings us back once again to our dependence on the gospel of Jesus. Because that's not something we can do in and of ourselves. We need the grace of God. We need the strength of His Spirit. So what does all this mean for us as Westgate, as we are trying to to be faithful to be uh, the church, not just go to it? How do we put it into practice? Well, I want to encourage us to apply these things in two ways. First, we must keep the gospel of Jesus at the center of our worship. We must keep the gospel, the good news, Of Jesus at the center of our worship. The minute we lose sight of Jesus and his grace in our effort to worship God is the minute that we begin to make worship about us. If he's not central, something else will be. And so we must keep him at the center of our worship. We need to keep the gospel at the center uh, of our conversations about worship. You know whether we're talking about music or preaching or the color of the carpet? Are we doing so with the character of the gospel, with a recognition of God's majesty and holiness, with the humility that remembers, I have no business even entering into God's presence apart from Jesus and his blood? And are we prioritizing the concerns of the gospel in our conversations about worship? The glory of God. Is that what drives us? The sufficiency of Jesus. Is that what fuels us and motivates us? The unity of his people. Our love for one another. The advance of his kingdom. Making him known. Do those things take precedence. Over little things like preferences. And tradition and tastes. The gospel needs to shape our conversations. About worship. It also needs to shape. Our motives for worship, you know, when we approach God or when we obey God in in any part of life, do we do it because of what we hope to get out of it? Is that what drives us? You know, if if I do this for God, then maybe he'll do this for me. Because that's not worship shaped by the gospel. That's a lot more familiar to ancient paganism where you're you're trying to base, you've got this unpredictable mean-spirited god and you're just trying to figure out how to keep him happy and get him off your back and maybe get a favor from him once in a while and and so when we approach worship as as this tit-for-tat relationship with god we we just, we muddy it we we make it about us again or we come with guilt and shame hoping to somehow make it up to god that's not worship motivated by the gospel a, a Keeping the, the gospel at the center of our motives in worship means keeping gratitude and grace at the center of our, of our motives. We come not because we're going to somehow make it up to God or somehow get something from Him. We come because of what He's done for us in Jesus. We come because through Jesus we're already acceptable in His sight. That there's nothing we need to add to the cross. We can come in delight and rejoice in Jesus his grace, and 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 live a life that honors him by his grace. So it needs to shape our motives for worship, and we need to keep the gospel at the center of our worship services, the actual order and content of what we do when we gather together. There's lots of things that can be passed off as worship. Not all of them are about Jesus. So uh, you know, Mike Cosper, a, a worship pastor, reminds us, For better or worse, our worship, regardless of our tradition or musical style or culture, our worship is shaping the hearts and minds of our congregations. We are always teaching, shaping, and painting a picture of what the Christian life looks like. What we do when we gather here is what gives us categories for how to live and and walk with God in the rest of life. The songs that we sing, the prayers that we pray, Obviously, the sermons that, that, that we preach. All of that has a huge, massive effect, whether we realize it or not, on our understanding of God and what it means to walk with him. So is Jesus the center of those things? Because if he's not, something else will be. Jesus must be the center of those things. So we need to keep the gospel at the center of our worship. That's the first application. The second is that we need to remember that worship involves all of life. It's not just something we go to. If we let ourselves buy into the idea that worship is what we do when we gather here, and that's it, then we lose focus and purpose for everything else in life. This becomes that static, isolated thing that really has almost nothing to do with our normal life. Instead of recognizing that This is the rallying point that fuels us and focuses us for how to walk with God throughout the rest of our lives. All of life matters to God. All of life is for his glory, whether we're selling software or fixing cars or changing diapers, uh, writing papers, telling others about Christ. All of life is an act of worship. To be done according to God's standards, with the strength of His Spirit, and for the sake of His name. In fact, apart from lives of obedience, apart from lives where we've really been changed by the gospel and we're seeking to walk with God, even if we're imperfectly doing it, which all of us are, we want to know and walk with Jesus. Apart from a life of repentance, our songs and our words will ring hollow in God's ears when we gather. As we saw in Amos earlier, the praise we offer with our lips is an irritating noise to God if it's not coming from hearts changed by the gospel and lives walking in repentance through the gospel. We're called to worship God in all of life. All of life is about worship to God. That's central to our identity as God's new covenant people. Only Jesus makes real worship possible. Only Jesus. He's the cornerstone. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Lord Jesus, we confess our imperfect worship. We confess that we value you far less than you deserve, and we value things other than you far more than they warrant. Lord, we pray by your Spirit, that you would fill our hearts with joy and gratitude that comes from seeing and tasting the salvation we have in Jesus. And that that would shape everything we do, God. And that we would walk together encouraging one another in that, Lord. None of us have arrived. That we're free enough to be honest about ways we mess up because. The grace of Jesus is sufficient. We don't have to hide that kind of stuff. But we're hopeful enough that because the grace of Jesus is sufficient, you're not done with us. You're continuing to change our hearts. That all of our lives might make much of you. God, would you do it among us as a congregation? Would you do it in every heart here? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.